there was an absolutely terrific game on the television. It was the World Cup final of, of the Rugby World Cup. New Zealand against Australia, much as I predicted right from the very beginning. It was six weeks of scintillating rugby. For me, it's a very sad day that I now have to wait for four years for the next one to come around. For some of you, it was a great hallelujah. It's over, it's done with, but it was a, it was a terrific time. And um, following that uh, game where the All Blacks, New Zealand, won 34 points to 17, we had um, the ceremony which took place on the pitch as it normally does. Uh, they are given their gold and silver uh, medals and then the winning team do a lap of honour way up to the 80,000 people who were left there at Twickenham. And it was at that moment that one excited 14-year-old New Zealand uh, named Charlie Lyne ran past the security guards onto the pitch to hug his hero, Sonny Bill Williams. Sonny Bill Williams plays centre for the All Blacks, but also he is the heavyweight boxing champion of New Zealand. Before he got to him, the security guard tackled young Charlie to the floor. And I'm sure many of you have seen this this week on social media, but for those who haven't, we're going to see it again. Just look what happens next. I don't tire in watching that. I've watched it many times this week. And, um, you know, for those who are listening to this on, uh, on podcast, what happened there was that Sonny Bill witnessed the lad being tackled. He went over to make sure he was okay and then uh, put his arm around him and took him back to his, um, the stands. He shook hands photo shoot with young Charlie who was on cloud nine and then Sonny Bill took off his uh, gold, solid gold I believe, winner's medal and gave it to young Charlie and ecstasy there as you can see is written all over his face move it on to the next one please okay there we go, isn't that a, isn't that a wonderful face <laughs> And that footage this week went viral and uh, has been watched presently. Over, over 15 million people have uh, hit on that this week. No one has ever seen anything like it. I've not seen anything like it in all the days I've been watching and playing sport. It was just astonishing. Uh, you see, what had happened there was that young Charlie was given a gift. It wasn't deserved. It wasn't earned. And uh, after all, Charlie broke the rules and ran onto the pitch. Probably he should have been scolded. Maybe he should have been escorted out of the ground. Probably not rugby tackled the way that he was. <laughs> Over the last three weeks, we've been attempting to understand what the Bible teaches by the word grace. And if you have heard the last three weeks of uh, teachings and you are still in doubt, that scene hopefully would leave you in doubt no longer. Because what we saw there was Sonny Bill Williams, a great player and a great man, giving his World Cup winning medal to young Charlie, which was an act of grace on his part. Charlie was totally undeserving of that medal. He didn't purchase it in an auction. He didn't work for it. He didn't pay for it. He just received it gratis, no strings attached, absolutely free. And grace is God giving us what we do not deserve. That God has loved us because he has loved us. Because he has loved us, he loved us when we were still sinners far away from him. And if God had turned his back on all of us, 
And if we were to be banished from his presence for all of eternity, then none of us could complain. We wouldn't have a leg to stand on. We would have nothing to say to God. But that wasn't the case. Because God, in the person of Jesus Christ, decided to stoop down to where we are. He condescended to become a man, to die for sinful humanity upon the cross. In the last few weeks, and we'll be hearing this phrase again and again through the nine-week series, that phrase from Philip Yancey, which is probably the most helpful phrase that I've come across on the subject of grace, that there is nothing that we can do to cause God to love us more than he does. And there is nothing that we can do to cause God to love us less than he does. That is earth-shattering. It is mind-blowing. It is gobsmacking. It is unbelievable that we should be loved in that way by Almighty God. The first words spoken often by young children uh, would be, Mam. Well, where I come from anyway, it's mam. Round here it's mum, isn't it? Mum. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's either one or the other, or some would say mum. Uh, or maybe dad. Or if that's the first word, probably the most popular is, uh, is no. <laughs> and one of the most well-used phrases, it's the phrase, it's not fair. It's not fair. Children just seem to have a, an acute sense of justice, even at an early age. And that phrase is used many, many times before they reach school. It's not fair. Johnny, it's time for bed. It's not fair. My friends at school stay up at whatever time. Mary, can you help with the dishes? It's not fair. And then Mary, or whoever Mary might be, will give a whole long list of times over the last two or three years. It's amazing how accurate their memory is on these things, of how their siblings have not done it as much as them. It's not fair. Or Lizzie, do your homework. It's not fair. We haven't had homework for three weeks, and now we've got all this homework that has to be in by tomorrow. You see, when the subject of grace is taught, the reaction of many people is exactly the same. It's those words. It's not fair. And I would go as far to say that if, we're not, that if we're not saying it's not fair, then we're not preaching and understanding grace properly. That's a big statement to make. I'd like to read a story from uh, Christian author Max Licardo, who powerfully makes this point about uh, grace and it not being fair. In his book, The, the Grip of Grace, I better put these on otherwise I'll never see the print, and uh, this is the story that he tells. He tells it so eloquently, and I felt that it would probably be better just to read this to you than try to uh, memorize the story. Wrong page. Right. And he tells the story of uh, a man by the name of Jeffrey Dahmer, who was a murderer and a cannibal from Milwaukee. And it's an astonishing story. Max Licardo writes, You know what disturbs me most about Jeffrey Dahmer? What disturbs me most are not his acts, though they are disgusting. Dahmer was convicted of 17 murders. Eleven corpses were found in his apartment. 
He cut off arms. He ate body parts. Mythosaurus has 204 synonyms for vile, but each of these falls short of describing a man who kept skulls in his refrigerator and hoarded a human heart. He redefined the boundary for brutality. The Milwaukee monster dangled from the lowest rung of human conduct and then dropped. And that's not what troubles me most. Can I tell you what troubles me most about Jeffrey Dahmer? Not his trial, as disturbing as that was, with all those pictures of him sitting serenely in court, face frozen motionless, no sign of remorse, no hint of regret. Remember his steely eyes and impassive face. But I don't speak of him because of his trial. There is another reason. Can I tell you what really troubles me about Jeffrey Dahmer? Not his punishment, though life without parole is hardly an exchange for his actions. How many years would satisfy justice? A lifetime in jail for every life he took? But there's another matter, and that's not what troubles me most about Jeffrey Dahmer. May I tell you what does? His conversion. Months before an inmate murdered him, Jeffrey Dahmer became a Christian, said he repented, was sorry for what he did, profoundly sorry, said that he put his faith in Christ, was baptized, started life over, began reading Christian books and attended chapel. Sins washed, souls cleansed, past forgiven. That troubles me. It shouldn't, but it does. Grace for a cannibal? Maybe you have the same reservations, if not about Dahmer, perhaps about someone else. We've sentenced them, maybe not in court, but in our hearts. We've put them behind bars and locked the door. They are forever imprisoned by our disgust. And then the impossible happens. They repent. Our response, dare we say it, we cross our arms and furrow our brows and say, God won't you let you off the hook that easy. Not after all you did. God is kind, but he's no wimp. Grace for average sinners like me, not deviants like you. You see, Max Licardo there put so eloquently what so many of us might think when we hear stories like that. And we want to shout out, just as a child would shout out, it's not fair. Perhaps not only it's not fair, but it's utterly scandalous. Well, as we've said before, Jesus, although he didn't use the word grace in his teachings, he lived grace and he taught grace like no one else ever has. In Matthew chapter 20, Jesus told of a farmer who hired men to work in his vineyard throughout the day. And the first were uh, hired first thing in the morning. The second batch were, uh, were hired at uh, coffee break time in the morning. Then some more were hired at lunchtime. Still others were hired in afternoon coffee break time. And others were hired just one hour, just one hour before the end of the day. Everyone seemed content with that. That was until pay time. Those were, that were hired late in the day were the first to be paid. And they came before the 
the owner, the farmer of, of that vineyard. And he gave those who were hired late in the day, worked for just one hour, he gave them one denarius, which was the equivalent of a day's wage. And when the men who had been working all day saw this, they immediately thought that they were going to get more. After all, they had worked there for not one hour, but they had worked in the fields for 12 hours. They had been there throughout the day in the scorching heat. And yet, to their utter amazement, they got exactly the same. You see, when Jesus told this story, he wasn't uh, providing a lesson in good business management. And I know that some of you people here today are in business. And if that's the way that you would run your business, you'd be out of business very, very quickly. And what Jesus said seemed to contradict everything that is known in good employee motivation and fair compensation. It made no economic sense whatsoever what Jesus was saying. But that was Jesus' intention, that it made no sense. Because what he was showing is that God's grace cannot be calculated like a day's wages. These workers were saying in Matthew 20 verse 12 These men who were hired last worked only one hour and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. In other words, what are they saying? It's not fair. That's what they're saying. It wasn't fair in that sense. The landowner in Jesus' story replied, Friend, I am not being unfair to you. Didn't you agree for, to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the man I hired last the same as you. Don't I have the right to do that? Or what, do what I want with my own money? Or are you envious? Because I am generous. You see, they are discontent arose because of the scandalous mathematics of grace. And so often we can identify with those people who had worked hard all day in the vineyard, in the scorching heat, by saying such things as, as why should someone like Jeffrey Dahmer, if he repented, go to heaven? Why should someone who has lived their lives entirely selfishly for themselves, not thinking of anyone else but themselves, be in heaven alongside people who have been martyred for the Christian faith, for standing up for Jesus in this world. It's scandalous. It's outrageous. It's shocking. Of course it is. Why should that thief on the cross next to Jesus, who lived his life as a criminal, defrauding, stealing from others, making it life harder than it already was for those people in his society, his neighbours. Why should he be welcomed into paradise alongside the disciples who walked with Jesus and served Jesus and many of them gave their lives for Jesus? Why should that be so? It's not fair! You see, the Pharisees in Jesus' day believed that there were only certain kinds of people who were to be loved. And they were people like themselves. People who kept the rules. People who lived morally. People who lived uprightly. And for them, God's love was partial. It was restricted. It was, it was limited to certain types of people. 
you see the, the Pharisees, they had a great problem believing that God loves all people. And they despised the people that Jesus socialized with. You know, the tax collectors and the people of mixed race and foreigners and women of ill repute. And the Pharisees just lumped all these people together and saw them as cast-offs in society. And they were trying to say to Jesus, don't waste your time with these no-hopers. They ridiculed Jesus. And they called Jesus a friend of sinners. Now, we might think that that's a great compliment. And if we were called as a, as a church body, a friend of sinners, we, well, we'd actually be quite thrilled with that. But that was never meant as a compliment to Jesus. Because for Jesus, they meant that as a slur on his character. And he spends time with such sinners. He must be one himself. How can he be a prophet? How can he be sent from God? He obviously has no idea what these people are like. Yet Jesus, he didn't see it that way at all. He said such things as, The Son of Man, speaking of himself, came to seek and save the lost. And by lost, he was speaking to those who were just wandering aimlessly through life, having no real sense of purpose or belonging, no sense of connectedness to God. And Jesus said, it's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. In other words, he was saying to the Pharisees, it's people just like these people that you so despise. They are the ones that I have come for. In Luke chapter 15, the start of the chapter there. We read, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all to gathered around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You see, those religious leaders, they were not best pleased with Jesus. They were scandalized because of the way that he socialized with the dregs of society. And then, as many of us know, Jesus told three stories brilliant stories, three stories in quick succession. Firstly, he told the story of the shepherd who had 100 sheep and he lost one of the sheep and he left the 99 in order to go out to find the one. You see, how long did he look? Well, it's so easy to miss this because we are so used to reading scripture and we are so used to that story. There are four words there that are included for us which are so, so important. And that is, Jesus says that the shepherd searches until he finds it, the sheep. Until he finds it, four words. Then a second story. A story of a woman who had ten silver coins. She loses one. She searches the house. She sweeps it clean. Again, those same four words. Until she finds it. And then Jesus went on and gave... The third story, which is the hardest hitting and most riveting of all. You know, if the first two stories left us in any doubt whatsoever about God's persevering and persistent love, then the third one would never leave us in any doubt at all. It's the story of the lost son. And we all know that as the prodigal son parable. But you know what? That's not one story there. That's where we, sometimes we get that wrong, I think. There are actually three stories there are three stories in that one story about the lost son. There are two human stories and there is, the, there is God's story. There is the story of the youngest son, there is the story of the older son, and there is the story of God. I'm sure we are on well-known territory here this morning. 
A man has two sons. The younger one asks for a share of his inheritance. The father surprisingly gives the inheritance to that son. He goes away. He blows the lot on wistful, riotous living in another country. He loses everything. Even his friends depart from him. He comes to his senses and he goes back to come before his father just to ask if he could become as a, as a servant in his father's house. But when the father sees him, he embraces him and throws a homecoming party for his son who was lost and is now found. Rings, cloaks, sandals, fatted calf, the business. The older brother refuses to join in with the party and he tells his father that it's unfair. Again, it's this, it's unfair. That his father has never even given him a goat to celebrate with his friends and then his father says to him you are always with me and everything I have is yours but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again was lost but is now found and that's the story and we know the story but I want you to listen carefully this morning to the three stories in the one story and the first story in that story is the story of the younger son. And it's about God's love. You see, this guy, he just made a mess of his life. He's come to his senses, he decides to return home. And on his way home, back to his father, he rehearses his speech that he's going to make to his father. And he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And that's his story. That's the youngest son's story. That's what he believed. He has enough faith to believe that his father would accept him as a servant, as a hired servant. And yet when he gets home, he gets far more than he ever deserved. Robes, rings, sandals, all those things are a sign not of being a servant, but they're a sign of being a son. You see, the younger son's story is very different to the father's story, which we'll come on to in a moment. But what about the older brother's story? Well, his story was this. All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeying your orders, yet you never gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he couldn't even mention his name, this son of yours, he could have said my brother. No, he didn't want to be associated with him at all. This son of yours, when he comes home, he squandered possessions, property on prostitutes. He comes home, you kill the fatty calf for him. I know I'm reading between the lines this morning, but sometimes, you know, when we read stories like this in Scripture, I think probably that's a, that's a good thing to do, to understand things, how this must have been. You know, I just read that speech that he gave to the, his father, and I can sense the venom in it. And it's, not, and, and it's so easy, actually, to miss what he is actually saying, because he is not merely saying, I've got a problem with this younger brother of mine. What he is actually saying is, I've got a problem with you too. His story was about the way that he perceived his father. Again, listen to the version of events here. 
the older brother says that he had been slaving for his father for years. Now, from reading that great story in Luke chapter 15, that's not the way I perceive the father. Is it the way that you perceive the father? I don't perceive the father as someone who's a slave driver. Far from it. He says that his father has not even given him a goat, let alone a fatted calf. Well, a goat doesn't have so much meat on it as a fatted calf. And what he's saying here, he's just trying to conjure up this image of what his father is like. That he is mean and miserly and tight-fisted and, and stingy. The bottom line, what he is saying in all of this, his father is unfair. That's what he's saying. He's unfair. And he thinks he's been wronged. He thinks he's been short-changed. It's not fair. That's his message. But what about the father's message? Well... Father said, we, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. You see, the first thing that he does here is correct the misunderstanding that the older brother has about him slaving. He said, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. You see, his father wasn't cheap. All this guy needed to do was to recognize who his father was and to ask for it. The other thing that the father does, he redefines what fairness is. And in doing so, he shows God's perspective, which is so different to a human point of view. You see, with God, people get what they don't deserve and that's what's called grace and those who are employed to work one hour late in the afternoon get a day's wages and those on the street corners are invited to the king's banquet and parties are thrown for younger brothers who have squandered their inheritance and all of those are pictures of what God is like you see, each brother in this story tells his own version of events. But each one has a distorted view of what their father is like. They have distorted stories. They misunderstand who their father really is. The younger brother, he believes that he's estranged. He believes that he's cut off. He believes that he has blown it with his life. That there's no way back. That he has disqualified himself because of all the terrible things that he has done and the best he could possibly hope for is to become like one of the hired servants become a slave that's the way that he had misunderstood it his older brother believes the opposite he believes that he does deserve his father's love because of his own goodness because of the way that he has served his father for all the things that he has done for the way that he has, in his own words, slaved for his father. But both sons are mistaken. One son, the younger son, thought that his sins had separated him from God, separated him from the father. The older brother thinks that the father owes him. But neither of them understood the father's love. You know, over the years I've come across people who are haunted by past sins 
you know, secrets that have been perhaps buried for many years, things that they know about themselves that no one else knows about them. They also believe that should they ever come into a church building, the walls would probably crumble or the roof would fall in because they know full well that they have disqualified themselves. And that's the way that they see themselves. They don't see themselves as accepted by God. And there are others. It's not their inadequacy of sins, but rather it's pride that gets in the way. And over many years, I've, as a minister, I've been in many Christian conferences. And in those conferences, we're often told how to make our churches more welcoming, how to make our churches more relevant, how to uh, be more missional, how to use multimedia, how to connect with others, how to build relationships with those who are not Christians and so forth. And sometimes those conferences, in, in, in truth, are helpful. But at the heart of it, you see, we can get all of those areas right. We can get all of those things right. And yet misunderstand the kind of God that we are doing it for. And if that's the case, we won't get very far at all. We will fail in our mission. And we will fail in God's mission. Because you see, if there's something wrong with the understanding that we have of God. You know, if we believe that God is loving one minute and is cruel the next. Or if somehow we believe that God's love is not perfect, it's not impartial, it's not persevering. Then no amount of good music or clever marketing, or compelling language, or great websites, or fantastic coffee, will be able to disguise that awful reality. You see, the sons in this story were surprised by their father's response. Neither of them could quite believe what they were hearing, what they were seeing. It just blew them away. And I would say that God's love should also blow us away. It really should. Here this morning we have celebrated together the communion we have celebrated the bread the broken body the wine which was spilt his blood for us and I know that as Christians we, many of us have been Christians for many years you know these things are so well known to us and maybe they've lost a little bit of their cutting edge I hope not because truly when we understand God's love his amazing grace we should be forever gobsmacked, our minds blown, that God is infinitely greater and more loving than our wildest and most extravagant thoughts about him. That his love is greater and more wonderful and more gobsmacking and more indestructible and eternal and durable and unbreakable and unmissable. Paul uses the word unsearchable than we could ever, ever imagine. And I would say to you this morning, as we are progressing in our series on grace, please, please never underestimate the love of God. Don't do that. Don't ever um, judge God's love by our human understanding of his love. A love which is often so fickle and so changeable and so erratic. God's love is remarkable. It's amazing. It's stupendous. And it runs the risk of being thought of as unfair. You see, as far as we know, Jeffrey Dahmer, that murderer and cannibal, 
did exactly the same as the thief on the cross next to Jesus in asking for forgiveness. And as far as we know, Jeffrey Dahmer got the same response as the thief on the cross. You will be with me in paradise. And when you think of it, Jeffrey Dahmer's request is no different from our request of God. He might have made it in a prison bunk. We might have made it in a church pew. But from heaven's perspective, we're all asking for the moon. And by heaven's grace, we get it. Yeah? (laughs) Sorry, I, I have to come back to this statement. It's one of the most amazing, gobsmacking statements I have ever come across. Grace means that there is nothing we can do to make God love us more. And grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. The thief on the cross did not deserve grace. The Apostle Paul did not deserve grace. Jeffrey Dahmer did not deserve grace. You, me, we did not deserve grace. But it wouldn't be grace if we deserved it. It's not fair. It's not. Of course it's not. Not in the way that some people think. It's not fair in another sense. It's not fair that God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, came and took my place and paid my debt. You see, if God was fair, we would get our just desserts. We would get all that we are owed. We would be cast away. We would be separated from Him for all of eternity. But I thank God that he did not show me fairness. What he showed me was his immeasurable love. What he showed me was his grace. And he gave up on his own son rather than giving up on humanity. What a God we serve. What security we have. What an eternity is awaiting us. The Savior alone carried the cross. For all of my debt he paid the cost. Salvation complete, now forever I'm free. Calvary covers it all. Guys, could you come back please and lead us in that song?